Hello and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and I apologize. This is how bad things have gotten in my life, where I am so busy that I'm recording intros to this show on my phone. I apologize to our producer, Tom Richfield. I apologize to any of you who can't stand the way that this sounds right now. But you know what? I want to get this show to you in a timely manner. I don't want to be one of those podcasts that just simply fades away. I want to get this machine rolling, make sure everybody gets the content that they want when they need it. So anyways, the guest this week is Mr. Graham Martin. He is the proprietor behind Resist Records. He is also the manager of a band called Parkway Drive. He lives in Australia. Great stuff, right? I go internationally for you fine folk. This is also part of the month where I feature record labels, and I make sure that everybody is aware of what's happening in our independent culture from a record label perspective, and he was a perfect person to contribute that. So more about him in a minute. Let's do some information dumps inside of your head, and then we'll be able to move along accordingly. So if you're not signed up to the 100 Words Digest email list, you're missing out. Visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com. On the right side of the page, you'll be able to see a little space in which you can type an email address. And I promise you, I'm not going to spam you. Once a week, you'll get recommendations. You will get guest info as far as who is coming up. And it's just a really fun way for me to interact with you, the listener of this show. So just do that. You can visit the show's website right now. I'll wait. Thank you for signing up. I appreciate it. You're very quick. You can also email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And also, you know what? Jump on the reviews. I need an ego boost. I need that, hey, I'm listening review that I get occasionally. So hop on the iTunes web store, type in 100 Words Podcast. You can see an easy space in which you are going to give the show one to five stars and then type a few words about what you feel on this show. Like I said, Graham Martin. I've known him for quite some time. I worked with him a couple of times when I was at the label Century Media Records. He's always been really, really pleasant to deal with and had a great perspective on what his continent can offer from a touring perspective, just kind of what's happening down there. So I knew Graham would be a great guest in the show, and he did not disappoint in any capacity. So like I said, he manages Parkway Drive, who is unquestionably one of the largest metalcore, metal bands, you whatever label you want to put on it. And he also runs a very successful label that puts out a bunch of cool stuff from Australia, as well as licensing certain records for his specific territory. And so we dive into it. For those of you that are interested in the international community, which a lot of you are, because a lot of you listen in Australia and the United Kingdom and Europe, so have a worldly perspective. Make sure you are knowing what's happening in all corners of the world. So anyways, I've said perspective way too many times, and I apologize. That is a crutch word. Here's my conversation with Graham, and I will talk to you after the chat is over. It was, uh, you know, Australia was such a, a foreign concept, um, not only because it was so far away, but just, you know, I, I, you didn't hear of very many bands coming from there. And then it was late 90s, early 2000s is when that, that shift started to change, where more bands from Australia, obviously, were able to make their way over here from, you know, obviously Parkway and then, you know, Day of Contempt, uh, you know, Dan's bands, like being able to make some impact over here. Was it one of those things where, 
uh, for a long time, uh, you being involved in kind of the independent music scene over there, you felt like you were just kind of, you know, operating on your own with very little, I guess, outside contact or how, what was the, you know, I'm trying to evoke the feeling that, that most people, you know, don't have here over in America where it's like, oh yeah, I got my hometown scene. Then there's a nation, but then, you know, you guys were doing your own thing down there. Yeah. I think with Australian bands are always like, obviously I would say that a majority of the world would probably look at America as a, um, like the, you know, the sort of the jewel of the crown, I guess, as far as bands go and as far as sort of like, you know, an Australian band to dream to get out of the country is pretty much like you can tour. Nowadays you can tour pretty much anywhere in, a, in a, like in Australia and it's sort of, um, it's not that hard and it's uncommon, whereas sort of back then it was sort of not every band toured and not every band, like, yes, there were shows from interstate bands, but it wasn't as though bands, local bands anyway, weren't really touring. So getting to America or getting outside Australia was a massive thing and it wasn't really, yes, there were bands before Parkway and Day of Contempt and those bands that got outside of the country, but very few, like you'd sort of talking, you know, on a handful, especially for what we do anyway, but there was very few bands that would get outside of Australia. So to get any band, um, I guess to get any band interested or get any label or touring company or any sort of promoter or agent interested in Australian music, it was definitely, you know, and it still is a sort of, it's a hard slog, but it's, um, you know, there's a lot going on down here that people are sort of starting to catch on to. And I, I mean, as cliched as this sounds too, where it's like, you know, I, I can dive even further back in my memory banks of like, obviously when Silverchair first started to hit over here, it was like, these guys are from where? Like, what does that yes. even mean? Um, yes. <laughs> like, did you, did you feel kind of a weird... Uh, I guess maybe a sense of pride when there were artists that regardless of whether or not you enjoyed their music, you felt like that, like, oh yeah, like we're the underdogs down here. We, we're, we're doing cool stuff. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of, I think um, nowadays a lot, like it's become a lot more, I wouldn't say the norm, but a lot of, a lot of Aussie acts are getting overseas, whether or not they're breaking in even the UK before they even break in Australia. And um, there's a lot more, it's always nice to see Australian bands get outside and do well, like it's one thing going to the US and, um, you know, sort of not so much losing a lot of money, but it's another thing to actually sort of build a fan base over there and have people, um, you know, appreciate what it is they're doing. And and sort of more so too is to realise that there's bands outside of their home country, whether it be Europe or the UK or the US, that there's actually things going on. So it's always nice to see a band do well outside of the country, but it's... Um, you know, I guess to a lot of bands are expected, like a band like, uh, you know, Five Seconds to Summer or who are, you know, probably doing really well over there. I don't know how proud I am of that because it has nothing to do with my world. So, you know. That, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's true. I guess maybe like, uh, you know, to use a business term, like first or second to market, you can be, you know, like that's cool. But then obviously as things have become more and more, uh, you know, the world is flattened. There's definitely, yes. there's definitely a less, uh, yeah, less pride you could take in that. I understand. Totally. Yes. Um, so you yourself, were you, uh, you born and raised in Australia and more specifically like where, uh, in the country? Uh, yeah, I was, um, I grew up in Sydney in Mascot, which is sort of where the international airport is. So anyone that's flown into, um, into Sydney, I've sort of grew up walking distance from the airport. So, I, I, yeah, I lived there pretty much until I was 21, and then I moved moved into Newtown, which is where the Resist base is, and, and then from there I've sort of moved around a bit since then. But 
the um, but definitely yeah grew up in Mascot, which is sort of Sydney Central, and Australia is a funny place where we sort of um, you know of, all, of the states, the majority of Australia is based on the coast. Nothing's in the centre. It's a massive landmass, and there's like once you start getting away from your, your capital cities, not much goes on. I, I think some some bands would argue the same experience happens in the states, where it's like, oh man, I don't want to, I don't want to play a show in you know Lincoln, Nebraska. But you're, yeah, it, it's definitely like there's literally you know you can play the middle of the desert, and that's that's what you can do in Australia, and no one no one does that obviously. Yeah, no, no. So like a lot of the touring stuff um, based around here is from you know whether it be Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, and then you've got places like Canberra, Newcastle, Hobart. And there you're sort of, I guess, still major cities, but they're not sort of a run-of-the-mill sort of visit for a tour. There's a lot of little towns along the way that you could go to but literally get 20 people. So it's sort of it's got to, you've got to work out is that worth the stop or is it worth, um, you know, just keep going and get to that next spot, I guess. Yeah, for sure. The I've been to Sydney uh, twice, and the impression, like I, I've the, the only times I've really spent in the city uh, beyond Sydney was Melbourne. The impression that I got of Sydney, and obviously, correct me uh, if your impression is different. While it's a very large city, and it's very, um, you know, for lack of a better term, like cosmopolitan, where it's like it feels upscale, whereas like Melbourne kind of feels a little more. Or sorry, Melbourne. I don't want to sound too much American. Yeah. <laughs> Melbourne feels a little more, uh, for lack of a better term, like working class as well. Um, is that a is that a fair assumption? Like Sydney kind of is is you know that uh, I guess higher class, posh, whatever adjective you want to use. Um, it depends on where you are. Like Melbourne's definitely, I would say it's nearly the other way around. Where Melbourne's probably more cosmopolitan, but in saying that, depends on where you are in Melbourne. There's definitely a lot of working class areas down there, and there's the same in Sydney. Like you could be in an area like Bondi or Vaucluse or, you know, somewhere where it is a double bay and up, upmarket areas and you would think you're in the middle of Beverly Hills but it's sort of, you know, you go 40 minutes west and you're in the slums. So it's sort of um, it definitely it, it, Sydney's such a big place that you can drive an hour and you're still not out of the city. So it's sort of I guess if you break down our, you know, the, the numbers that come to shows and the popularity of certain things in the, the city of Sydney, um, Melbourne has a lot better sort of geographic way set of setup because you get an hour outside of Melbourne and you're in the, you know, in the countryside. So a lot of Melbourne's generally based in this around the centre of Melbourne, whereas Sydney, like I said, you can be at Penrith and that's still in Sydney, but it's still an hour drive from the city. So. It's it's just too big, right? <laughs> no, that, I, I, yeah, no, I can see what you're saying. Um, so, uh, what was your uh, you know your, your childhood like? Like, what was your family structure as far as brothers and sisters, and what were your uh, parents doing for a living as you were uh, growing up? Um, I so I have a, an older brother um, and mum and dad. Dad was a cabinet maker for a um, for a poker machine company. So I guess like you, I don't know if you call them poker machines, your slot machines. Yeah, sure. So dad built the bases and like I guess what you see of a poker machine, he would build all the, um, you know, they sit on a base and then they got sort of, a, you know, a, I guess, a you know, a structure around the machine. So he would make all those and that's um, the company he worked for was a really big sort of thing down here and that his boss was a relatively popular guy. So it was always a bit weird because they, the company was always in the media when, 
anything come up about gambling or sort of things like that. So it was always a bit sort of strange to be like, oh, that's who dad works for. So, um, and mum was, um, she worked a few jobs. She was sort of at one point sort of just doing council work, like just at admin, sort of at council, the local council. And then she, um, she used to also work at like a massive department store in the sort of accounts sort of area there as well. And so, yeah, so she sort of just did basically a, a nine-to-five type thing and um, they've both retired now and they've gone out and lived out in the countryside. So they've sort of, yeah, got a good... Uh, what did you start to get into as a kid as far as like, you know, were you, um, you know, I, 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 I get this very, uh, you know, vivid picture of basically most of the Australian kids just like uh, soaking in the experience as far as, uh, you know, outdoors is concerned. Is that uh, is that an accurate representation of what you were getting yeah, into? Like in where where I grew up was um, an area that like a lot of I guess sports is a massive thing. I played um, rugby league for a very like from when I was probably four or five years old through to when I was you know ten eleven. But I had a really bad car. I wouldn't say a bad car accident, but I had a car accident when I got hit by a car when I was younger and shattered my ankle. So I sort of um, I had a whole piece of like a whole bunch of um, pins put in my ankle. So. Um, the doctors were sort of like, yeah, you can't really do any contact sport anymore. So I sort of, um, from there I actually went to skateboarding, which really didn't probably make much sense, but, uh, <laughs> right. uh it was, so, so yeah, I guess when I was early, like early teens, and I, I think that came through my brother, he was sort of skating and it was sort of just an easy thing to sort of, you know, there's always concrete and there's always, um, you know, sort of things to do. So yeah, I sort of got into that really, um, where every, you know, like every after school, you'd sort of come home, you'd run, get your board and you'd, off you'd go and sort of go and take you somewhere. And I guess skating then wasn't, it was probably at the, you know, I guess like the Bones Brigade and things like that sort of, I, I wouldn't say it was maybe late 80s into the early 90s. Um, and then from that, my brother had a really bad accident. He fractured his skull where he um, he come up his board one day and sort of just, yeah, didn't really got up. He was very, I was there with him and he sort of got up and he sort of just passed out basically and I took him home and then mum had to take him to hospital because he started coughing up blood and then turns out he had a uh, like a blood clot on his brain and the doctors sort of um, it ended up being a fractured skull. So then mum and dad were sort of like, oh, if you're going to skate, you need to wear a helmet and things like that. And I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. So I did that for a little while and then it sort of got to a point where um, it was just sort of, I was like, uh, I was sort of, you know, got over it and then I actually took the golf of all things because where we lived, um, we had a massive yard next to us, like the, we backed onto the school. So the school had probably, uh, it was probably four or 500 meters of grass that we'd just go over there and sort of bash balls around. So, and, um, yeah, so through that, I sort of got really into golf and through my teens, that sort of, what I all I would do is play golf. Interesting that weird, strange events. But every everything down here, everything sports a massive thing. Possibly not so much now amongst the youth because of you know it seems that technology overtakes a lot of sports stuff. But um, sports still a massive sort of part of the Australian culture down here. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can see what you're talking about. And that, I mean, I, I find golf interesting. That that's exactly what I did as a teenager too. It's like I was junior PGA, and I was just I was really de- yeah. dedicated to the sport. And I think it's often um, that sport, especially within the context of you know punk and hardcore and independent music, is just like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, what, what, what? You know, you're 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 going to the country club and playing this you know rich man sport or whatever. Yes. And it's like, well, 
it doesn't have to be like that. And it's funnily enough, a lot of people now, you know, are into music, play golf. So it's sort of, um, it's, yeah, it's an addictive sport and it's sort of, I guess you, you strive to get better and it's a frustrating game as well. So it's, I, I still play every now and again, but it's, um, it's more finding time. It's the hard part. Like it's, yeah, it's one thing, you know, you know, you got to be out there for five or six hours from the time you leave home to the time you get home. So, right. Yeah. You got to, you got to block off uh, half a day and that's a, uh, that's a difficult task to do. <laughs> yes. Yes. As much as as easy as it sounds, it's not that easy. And so then, you know, as you were kind of, you know, finding your own identity and, and going into, do you, do you call uh, high school, high school down there or do you call it uh, something different? Yes, school. Okay. Yeah, high school. So and- after, after primary, primary school goes to year six and then high school starts at year seven through to year 12. Okay. Um, so then as you started to, you know, matriculate through school and um, kind of develop your own identity, uh, what kind of, uh, what kind of kid did you find yourself being? You know, I get the impression that you, from as long as I've known you, you've always been a very um, laid back and relaxed guy. Um, yeah. And I know you could probably paint that uh, brush very broadly of most of yeah. Australia, <laughs> but uh, is that, uh, is that reflective? Pretty much, yeah. I, I was sort of, and I think that comes from. I don't know where that comes from. I think I, I, I think a lot of Australians are pretty like that. But I sort of um, I put a lot of stuff down to like when I was fourteen and like I guess a young teenager. And through playing golf, I was hanging around with a lot of like you know. When I was fifteen, I was playing um, grade A pennants against grown men. So I was sort of like, it's you. You sort of you, there's no real time to be a little smart ass, I guess. So you sort of mature pretty quickly. And I, I think that's where it's sort of um, growing up. I was never, I'd like to think I was never a bratty type kid. I was just sort of, you know, I was, I've always been pretty shy as far as go. I've never sort of been like, a, a, I don't like the center of attention or I don't like to be the life of the party type guy. I sort of just, I'm happy to sort of, you know, mix in the, in the background type thing. But I, I think I've always been pretty sensible. So I don't know if I've ever done anything really stupid that's or what people would probably consider stupid. I don't think, um, I've ever misbehaved too badly. So yeah, I sort of like to think I was a good kid to my parents. Right, right. Yeah. It sounds like you were a generally respectful kid because of... Yeah, uh, totally, totally. And I think that, like I said, like when you're, you know, 15, 16 and you're sort of, um, uh, I like to think at high school, I was always got along with my teachers. I always sort of, and not in a suck up type way, but just in a, you know, like I sort of, I didn't really try to be anything I wasn't. I just sort of did my own thing. And I think the, a game of golf or something along those lines where there's a lot of um, etiquette and things like that you have to follow, you sort of quickly, you know, it pulls you into line, I think. So it was, um, it was probably a good, good learning curve. Skateboarding by all stretch of the imagination during that time was still, you know, considered counterculture and, um, obviously because you and your brother were doing it was it uh were your parents ever uh, concerned i mean obviously when you were bringing home you know a, a cracked head and all those things like of course they were concerned but were they like well as long as they're they're doing it and they're somewhat safe with it then they're okay i think so yeah like i, I don't think there was um i'd like to think there was never a concern with it like it was always pretty what we thought was pretty safe and what we sort of like we didn't really you know when you sort of early teens there's not you know, like at the end of the day, I guess the things we were doing on skateboards wasn't too advanced as far, like say if you're a 20, you know, a, a grown man type guy and you've got that massive risk of, yeah, I want to sort of, you know, launch myself into the air and things like that. Like a, a lot of the things we were doing on skateboards was pretty, 
basic entry type level, but you're just having fun doing it with your friends and things like that. So I'd like to think there was no sort of real concern there, but it wasn't until, um, but I guess through that too, that's how I sort of come along. Like I always remember like through early high school, all my brother's friends and like the people he was hanging out with all had things on their, like logos on their bags um, or, you know, on their shoes or skateboards or they'd have, you know, bad religion stickers and dead Kennedy stickers and, you know, the DRI sort of guy and all these things that you'd sort of be like, I don't even know what any of this means, but it all looks really cool and that guy's a really cool guy, so this stuff must be cool. And then um, the I just remember watching all the like a lot of the Bones Brigade movies and the soundtracks to those and I was never a big surfer, so I don't sort of, like a lot of people discover, I guess, you know, punk music through surf videos and especially in Australia where the sort of, you know, the Taylor Steel surf movies were so big. But I was sort of more like into the, I guess, the soundtracks that were on all the Bones videos and and that's where I remember a Ray Barbie, there was a Ray Barbie, um, I can't remember what video it was off, but there was a scene where he was just skating down this street and I, it was a Mac Rad song and I was just like, how cool is this song? Like I just loved it and it was sort of, at the time I was probably listening to things like Nirvana and Rage Against the Machine and like the early 90s, you know, grunge stuff purely because I was never exposed to anything, you know, like if it's not as though any of those bands were massive, massive bands and it was sort of, yeah, like through that, it was just sort of trying to find more music along those lines, I guess. Yeah, it makes sense. As far as like when you're looking to these older people and you see stuff that you're just like, I don't know what that is, but it seems like they're onto something. Like they've yes. got they've got the, the solution and I've got a problem of trying to be cool in some capacity. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, I, I, for me, it was, um, I guess, through early high school, I was into a lot of hip hop sort of stuff. And then it's sort of, it got a bit, I don't know, I really like bands like Public Enemy and I like bands like NWA and BDP and Ice-T and a lot of these sort of um, classic, what now are classic hip hop bands. And then it sort of just started getting really wacky. Like a lot of it sort of got a bit super, I wouldn't say pop, but it just got too R&B and I found it sort of, it lost a lot of its edge and I, there was one song on when Anthrax and Public Enemy did collaboration of Bring the Noise, I was just like, wow, how cool is this song? It's so fast and everything about, like everything was just so good and I never really got into metal. Like metal was always a thing that I was just like, it's too too flamboyant and too sort of, you know, something about it that was really cheesy and um, I sort of, uh, but I really loved the pace, like anything that was fast. And then I guess Nirvana Nevermind came out and they had a couple of songs on it that were really quick. And I was like, man, this stuff's just great. And I had to, and that's how I sort of, I guess, tried to find more and more of that sort of just whatever was fast. And it was, yeah, if it was fast, I really appealed to me. Sure. Did you care about school? Like, did, was it one of those things where once, Gosh. once music started to, you know, kind of infiltrate your brain, was it like, oh, school, total afterthought. I'll just uh, get through it. it. For me, it was more golf that was the problem. Like when I was 15, I was, I wouldn't say I was working nearly full time, but when you're doing your, like, I guess I finished school at 17 and most, like I was probably young in my grade. So like most people would generally finish at 18. But I remember when we do, which is our like high school certificate, which is, you know, I guess your, whatever the end of year exams in year 12 is, I was working full time at the golf course. So I was sort of like, and that whole year, like in year 12, which is the you know year that you're supposed to, I guess, focus the most, I purposely chose the year before, I purposely chose the easiest subjects to pass that took the least amount of time because I said to my parents, I don't really, like if there's a golf thing on, I'm going to go and play it. And they were fully supportive of that. They sort of, um, 
they, you know, got it, I guess. And it was sort of more a thing. So I, I, I did whatever I could do that didn't really require to study. And like, if it was a basic math, I did a basic math. If it was a basic, you know, all the subjects I chose were just things that were general knowledge sort of subjects and um, required no studying and I could still pass. Right. But the minimum amount of effort for the yes. whatever whatever would Best get result. sure sure yeah. <laughs> yes yes the um and so it sounds like golf was basically like was that you're like okay once i graduate uh high school i'm going to caddy i'm gonna work at the pro shop and like was that your yeah. vision that was well i was so when i was yeah from 15 16 17 i was playing like off a two handicap um i had I guess like anyone that's playing that sort of level, you sort of hope to like go into work around pros and things all the time. So you sort of like, well, that's just the step you, you go from, you know, playing for your club to playing for whether it be state or whether it be um, just sort of, you know, representing type things. And I sort of was, that was what I was like from probably 16, 17. I was like, yeah, well, this is what I'm going to do. And then, um, when I, I, and I had a, I started getting a really sore back around probably late 19, early 20. And, um, that led to being a tumorous sort of growth on my hip, like through physio and through a lot of other sort of visits to the doctors. Um, we sort of really couldn't determine what was going on with why I was getting sore back all the time. And then um, it, one day it just got a bit swollen and the doctor was like, yeah, you probably got, should go and uh, get an x-ray. So I went and got an x-ray and then that led to being this tumorous growth on my hip that um, they were like, yeah, it's sort of pretty much growing just off your spine so you have to sort of get it cut out. And then that went like for – so probably about two years that took – that whole process was sort of like, well, this is what's happening now and, and golf wasn't on the agenda and that's what sort of I guess – led me towards doing what I'm doing now. So definitely a drastic pivot. And so did you play in bands? Like, were you, were you, t- were you attempting to kind of, you know, no, that never entered your equation? I've never like, in like through school, like things like the guitar just blew my, like if I, a friend of mine was a really good drummer and, um, I could, I could just watch him drum and I was sort of like, how does this guy do this stuff? Like how, like you know you're watching him do it and you're just like and he, you know he might have been 14 15 and i was just like whoa and then you'd see someone play guitar and i'd be like i can't work out why you know how do they know where to put their fingers and things like that and even i remember when when i saw parkway or when i saw ben who drums in parkway i saw him for the first time drumming he was probably 14 15 and a tiny little kid and he just blew my mind like as to how good he was as a drummer and i've never had that musical sort of I don't know if you'd sort of, um, you know, growing up, I never played, I never did school like music lessons at school. I never did anything that was any form of music. It was sort of just always like I'd watch them in all going how these people do it. And I never had the patience to practice or to learn. Like I would always sort of be like, well, if I can't do it, I don't want to do it type thing. So, <laughs> and I just never really, it, it never appealed to me to be honest with you. So I did, I did try to, a friend of mine taught me bass for a little while and I, I think I learned a couple of um, songs of on bass, and that was my musical um, history. Right, your your musical yeah. career was that. Yes, it was over. Yes, very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, once you started to kind of take the first steps, you know, obviously away from golf and realizing that that wasn't going to be your trajectory, um, did you immediately go into kind of um, you know like management label? Like what what kind of showed showed itself first? 
what um so a friend of mine was running like resist was just a record store like a, a it was a store slash skate store so it was sort of it would sell a few musical products it would sell a few you know we'd have shirts and you know basic band merch and whatever as well as a skate sort of part to it um and he was also in a band toe to toe and then and through that they started touring a lot and they were sort of doing you know like going over whether it be going overseas or whether it be sort of just touring Australia a lot, it was being away a lot and he was sort of like, oh, we need a, you know, I need to, it's either you close a shop or you have someone sitting. I was sort of like, well, I've got a heap of time on my hands because I'm doing nothing because uh, like normally when you work at a golf course, like I was still working at the golf course, so you never worked a full day at the golf course. You'd always work half day so you could play the other half. And because I wasn't playing golf, I was sort of like, look, I've got a heap of time. I can come and sit in the store and do whatever. And then it just evolved from there and we sort of started doing other things. And I, um, uh, his partner got pregnant and he was sort of like, I can't really do this anymore. So I sort of, yeah, just took, took the reins. Interesting. So basically it just went from being kind of like a, a store clerk to like, oh, like we can help other artists in different capacities? Yeah, well, it's and then everything that we've done along the way has been, so we used to have in-store shows and that's where we sort of, like we decided to do the label um, just because at the time there wasn't many labels. I guess this would have been the time of when, like you're saying, Victory was, you know, between Victory Equivision, Revelation, even sort of, you know, those sorts of labels were the benchmark, I guess, of what at the time hardcore music and heavy music was happening. And, um, and like we sort of wanted to do something along the lines that replicated more of that than a label that was like, oh, just going to put this out because it's a mate's band. It's got no distribution, but we're just going to sell it at shows. We sort of wanted to sort of be like, let's try to make this a national thing as opposed to just doing, you know, a thing to help your mates type thing. It was helping our mates, but it was also at a bit of a more serious level. And we had the time to do it, like sitting in a shop all day, you're not busy all day. So we had the time to focus on doing different things with bands and and through Scott's contacts and stuff through Toe to Toe, he obviously knew a lot of people. So, and he also had like, by that stage, the band had probably put out two or three albums or maybe two albums. And, um, before that they had a bunch of seven inches. So he, he had, he had a really good knowledge as to how you put out a record and how you sort of can, you know, do it and have it not sort of suck, I guess. So that was sort of a benefit that we had. And, and from that we sort of started, I guess as the store got busier, more bands wanted to tour because at the time we were sort of dealing direct with, like we were sort of dealing, there wasn't many distributors, so you were dealing direct with the record label to buy records and they'd be like, oh, hey, we've got a band going to Japan. Would you be interested in you know, having them come to Australia? And we'd be like, well, we don't know what we're doing. And it was sort of like a, a thing that we were just like, yeah, cool, we can do it. And we did the grade tour. After that, I think we did Ensign and then Throwdown and Hope Conspiracy. They were all the first, Strike Anywhere, they were all the first you know, international bands that we toured and then um and then it just keeps from there on it's sort of just evolved and evolved. And as far as the management side of things goes, that's just sort of something also that more so with Parkway, it was a thing where they just were getting busy, really busy in Australia and um and I was sort of like said to them, You guys can't really just keep doing the same things down here. We have to sort of, you know, like if you're gonna sort of like they were killing it down here. So we're like, let's try to take this outside of Australia and and that's where I guess it's sort of um you know, we, we, yeah, we sort of, that was probably 10 years ago now. So, and that, and that it's everything we've sort of done is just evolved from what the tools you had, I guess. It, it, to me, it's always been really inspiring just because it's like, like you've mentioned, like you don't have really any idea what you were doing. Like you were like, well, yeah, I guess we'll bring a band down here. 
we can get them like three or four shows and people want to do that. But then the, when the rubber hits the road, they actually don't do whatever it is that they say that they're doing. But you guys, whether good or bad, you actually executed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But well, we sort of like the other thing too, is that we had a, a game, we had like local bands touring and the, Touring schedule and the touring side of things wasn't too different from an American band to an Australian band, but obviously once you start introducing visas and paying for flights and all these other things, there was a lot of costs. So um, those were the, like working out, you know, I want to say the first tour I did, I don't recall ever doing a budget for it. Um, it was more like let's just hope it works and um, we didn't lose much money. I don't think I don't think we lost money at all. It didn't make money, but... Now, obviously, things are a lot different as far as budgets and things like that and sort of what you hope to achieve through the sales of a, a tour and, and all the other things that go along with it. But back then, it was sort of more like, let's do it and worry about the results later. Right. <laughs> well, I want to focus on on the management of Parkway since we were uh, you were just kind of alluding to that. I, I've always found it so, um, obviously, you're so close to it that it's probably difficult for you to have some sense of perspective in certain respects. But, it, like, I don't understand how unbelievably massive the band is by... You know, obviously from the, like you said, they were killing it in Australia and then like obviously how you guys did started to, you know, do well in Europe and how you started to, you know, do well in the States. It's just, um, it's impressive because the band, like you said, and honestly, it really, really highlights it in the DVD. It's not to say that the guys don't work hard, but they're, they're like we were alluding about earlier with you where it's like, you know, just very relaxed. It's like, oh yeah, I guess we'll, uh, I guess we'll do this tour. And I guess I guess we'll kind of do this, and then success has found them. You know, I, there, there's no real question wrapped up in it beyond the fact it's just like the band shouldn't be successful because they don't have this like you know killer instinct drive. But I think yeah, the the flip side of that is like well that's why they are successful. With any band, um, doesn't matter if if they're just a local like a hometown type band or a um, a touring national type band. But at the end of the day, if you've got a band full of you know, assholes. Chances are, people will pick up on that, and um, and they're like, like I said, they're sort of like a group of guys who, you know, for how popular they are now, they're still the same. You know, guys that I remember when they were fifteen and sixteen, that sort of just, you know, they were just stoked to play shows and stoked to, um, you know, do things, and and it's sort of like to me, they're still the same dudes. So. It's. I think that's their biggest sort of um, attribute is that they are just really lovely guys, and um, and that obviously goes a long way with any sort of industry. But in music, there's so many assholes that it's sort of like chances are no one wants to deal with anyone. So if you're a nice guy, you sort of get a lot of opportunity, I guess. But in saying that, there's a lot of nice bands that aren't doing as what they do. So it's sort of like they've, 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 there's a lot of factors. I think that is involved with them that do really well, that sort of um, for good or bad, it sort of it works. So it's sort of, we just keep, keep doing what we do and it sort of keep, people keep turning up. It defies convention, but I, I yeah, totally. totally. And, and sort of like, we, you know, over the years we've had sort of people, whether it be other offers or other, um, you know, like, and a lot of it too, like I remember when, um, even back when you and I sort of first probably started talking with trying to get the band whether it be over to the US or whatever. And it was sort of, um, I remember I went over to the States to, I had a lot of interest from bands and labels 
being like, oh, hey, we want to sort of, you know, we wanted, we're happy to do, you know, the record's great, but, you know, like we just don't know how it's going to go or whatever. And I had a meeting, um, pretty much the only label I wouldn't have sent it to was Epitaph, thinking that, like in my head, Epitaph was still this monster of a label that was sort of like, man, they did, you know, Pennywise, Ransom, Bad Religion, all these other bands. And Brett emailed me um, before I left the airport. He emailed me sort of being like, oh, hey, if you want to, um, I think through Burning Heart, I, I was talking to Peter at Burning Heart prior to going to the US. Um, he and I would always talk through about, I guess, Australian stuff. And before that, when Millen Collin, 59 Times of Pain, all these European bands that Burning Heart was doing, um, Australia was a big market for him. And I just knew Peter through, you know, him sort of touching base with us. And then I, I remember he was sort of like, oh, what bands are doing well? And I was like, oh, Parkway's, you know, we're sort of doing this and this and this. And he sent that on to Brett and then Brett sort of got in touch with me and I was like, hey, I'm coming over there, you know, whatever. And he sent me an email being like, yeah, let's meet up. And I sort of thought nothing of it. I was like, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere, whatever. And he was like, yeah, I love it. I want to do it. And I was sort of like, yeah, cool, whatever. And I was like, literally, this is my first meeting. So I've got to have a whole bunch of other meetings to go. And he was like, well, at the end of them, come back to me because if, you know, like we can match, we can do whatever you want to do. We just really want to do the band. And I was sort of like, well, this is awesome because the band love bad religion. So I was like, how, how, you know, is the match made in heaven? So it sort of was a, yeah, like I, I think a lot of the US stuff, you know, you can put sort of back down epitaph sort of backing, I guess. And um, it definitely makes our job a lot easier. Yeah, no, that's really, uh, it's really inspiring to just, again, be like out of the blue where it's like, oh, wow, like this is cool that you're paying attention to us. Because you've been involved for so long in so many different uh, facets of the industry from obviously like you're doing right now, you're waiting for the record store to open to management to booking, all that sort of stuff. I know this is, there's probably a lot wrapped up in this question, but like what still keeps you engaged? Because like, you know, I, I look at myself where it's like, whatever, I'm 34 years old and clearly well past the age of where I should care about, you know, a 16 year old playing hardcore or whatever. But, <laughs> but, you know, but because of it, I'm just like, I can't think of anything else I would be doing. And I'm sure that that is some variation of your response. But like, you know, it, is it the new bands that keep you engaged or like what, what sort it's, of inspires yeah, you? I think it's a lot of things. There's a lot of, um, I still, and passionate. I, I still enjoy the, like, I guess every, between the label, the store, um, the touring and everything that you're involved with, there's still an element of everything. Like with touring last night, we had title fight. Um, we do their Australian tours for them and they did a show last night or just a tour in general that's sort of doing really well and working with, you know, such a rad group of guys again, like it's sort of really refreshing to not have to do with assholes. And, um, the like just I find working with good bands and working with good people is still rather fun but when the when that turns to working with not so nice people I've sort of got to probably learn to try to avoid those because they they sort of can um I find the the business side of bands nowadays is too full-on um the simplicity of a band just touring and and I think too like a lot of in the U.S. a lot of bands I guess get ripped off or a lot of bands get um you know, like there's a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say shonky people, but there's a lot of people that sort of um, probably are out to rip people off and we don't have that problem down here. So it's sort of, you'd like, I find American agents and managers are very defensive of everything. So they sort of, just the amount of paperwork and contracts and things involved to me now just bores me because it's sort of like this is so all we want to do is work with a band and put on a show and do this we don't really need to go through this whole motion you should just let me do what I do and it'd be okay but 
I can t- totally see why we have that other element to it, but that's a bit, um, yeah, if I could avoid that, I sort of do. But um, And as far as the store goes, I still enjoy, you know, getting new music and getting new stock in and getting, you know, that, that whole process, it's sort of like, you know, every week's like Christmas, like you're opening new boxes and you're getting new stock and, you know, it's that's exciting. And, and then releasing new records, I sort of always find that, you know, like it's nice to, you know, like from the time you get a master or the time you sort of, you know, the process from you talking to a band about doing a record to the time the record comes out is probably, you know, 18 months to two years. So to finally see that come to fruition is pretty rewarding and satisfying that you're sort of like, well, and, you know, not to mention if the band does really well or people respond to the album really well mm-hmm. or get good reviews, you sort of, you know, that's, I find that very satisfying. So there's a lot of, um, I still find, yeah, I still am pretty passionate about what I do and um, I don't want to say anything's changed. Like we've been doing it for close to 20 years and I'd sort of want to say nothing's you know, nothing really has changed. If not, we've got it. If anything, we've got a lot better than what we do. But um, yeah, I think the the fire is still there. Yeah, it's exciting, and I think it's uh, something you hit on there that I think is interesting is the uh, you know the, the notion of hey, like let us do our job. Like let's calm down. We don't need all of these this red tape and all these things that you know can't can't it be a quote unquote gentleman's agreement where we just are going to do our job and you do yours and um. I de- sense. Right. And I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, culturally speaking, there's definitely a divide there where it's just like you're, it would be much easier for you to be, like you said, just cut through that. Whereas here in America, it's just like, well, no, we need like to cross our T's and dot our I's. And yes. it's like, <laughs> there's, there's something know. to it. Yeah. I'm sure in the States is a lot more full on than what it is here, but I don't know at what point that I, I don't know if it's going to get worse or any better, or if it's sort of something that sort of happened more often down here, but it's not going to come from me where I'm, you know, if you were to say to me, Hey, I'm going to do this. I trust that you're going to do that. And it's not really a thing that, you know, there's no, and I, I sort of like, if there was someone that I was thinking was going to try to be out to you know, be dodgy, I probably wouldn't try to deal with those people. So it's, um, if you, the people that you deal with are good people, you continue dealing with them. And that's why the majority of people that are in this business, if they're good and they're sort of reliable, that's why they're still going. Whereas the ones that are fly by night is they're pretty in and out. So it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I just find it a bit sort of, like I said, it's all very boring about, you know, you're sort of book a and you do whatever and all of a sudden you get all this paperwork of like, oh, hey, we've got to get you to sign off on this. It's like, why? Like, that's not going to change how many people come to the show just because I signed a document. It's, and it's, I like the attitude of the, like the water fights its own level where it's just like, yeah, if you you do conduct yourself you know, horribly and your reputation does precede you, um, hopefully you will eventually be weeded out of this thing. Because no, yes. clearly no one's doing this for money or fame. Like, No, well, there's not much of that floating around so it's a it's a passion business right it, it kind of the the education process of people uh not understanding uh your quote-unquote uh you know territory from a business term um is there a lot of people that that kind of come into it with uh clearly much different expectations and then you obviously have to either from a touring perspective or just a record sales perspective down there is there a lot of sort of uh education that has to go on there yeah, a, ma- a massive amount from both from the label point of view. There's inundated, but we we would get offered to license records probably on a weekly basis from anything from you know like could be a death metal record to a you know a 
really pop record, but the um, the amount of labels that will be like, oh, hey, interested in licensing this. And mind you, they might not be an established US act yet. Um, and we have, at the moment, we probably have less than a handful of indie stores that would take on any records. And the problem you have with Australia, there's no vinyl plants. So there's vinyl plants down here, but they're not, the quality is probably not quite there yet compared to what is out of the US or Europe. So you still don't, like by doing a local pressing of something, you still got to import it somewhere along the production line. And that means your costs are just as high as if we were to bring it direct in off the label from the US. So I sort of find that licensing's irrelevant down here at the moment because there's just not the avenue to put it out. So that's sort of one thing that a lot of, whether it be agents or labels or managers don't really comprehend, they sort of don't get that there's just no, you know, there's a handful of stores that sell this sort of music. Um, obviously online there's a lot, a lot, you know, a lot of online presence that, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of the labels are sort of ordering to Australia on a regular basis. But um, And then as far as touring goes, there's a lot of, um, like Australia's a weird place. We've got such a massive landmass, but realistically can only do about seven or eight shows. So it's not like, you know, bands or agents will be like, oh, we want to be out there for a month. It's like, what are you going to do in a month? Are you going to play the same place five times? There's no, there's not options. No options. And and there's a, it's a funny, like, I guess when you got other people trying to tell you how it should be done, like, oh, but when we go to Europe, we do this. It's like, well, we're not Europe. We're you know, we're 30 hours from Europe. So there's no reason why. And again, like I sort of, like, I guess with Parkway, I've learned to trust your local person because the local person knows generally best. Sure. Yeah. It's like, I'm not on the ground there. I trust you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they know what's going on. Right. Um, uh, anecdotally, I, I think it's, it's interesting in regards to the fact of, uh, you know, Parkway, obviously, you know, playing these venues that like, you know, if I ever tell a person who's just maybe like they listen to Parkway, but they don't understand how big they are in context, uh, to what they are in Australia. So like, you know, if they're playing a typical, uh, you know, whether they're at the, the, their pinnacle of their career or it's like now they're they're stable and they're drawing this many people. Like, you know, what was the what's like some of the largest shows that they've played in Australia? Just because I, I find it so fascinating and people don't even understand where it's just like, oh, yeah, big hardcore shows like a thousand people. It's like, well, <laughs> no, but they the, I want to say when they did the Deep Blue tour, which was two albums ago, I don't know if every venue sold out, but it's pretty close. But we did. Five and a half thousand at um, in Sydney. It's a Horton Pavilion, which we sold that out relatively well in advance. I think we did six, a bit over six thousand up in Brisbane. Like so, their capital city shows are all around the five or six thousand mark. Um, in some cities, like places like Adelaide, which is a lesser populated area, they'll do two thousand. There's a, a venue there, two thousand. Sell it out a month in advance, and that's how it goes. I think. We did an outdoor show there once and got three and a half thousand people, but um, the cost for the outdoors part was just so high that we were sort of like, it's no point really doing this again because we make more money in a two thousand cap room. So, um, so the that's what yeah, like they haven't got beyond that, but that's sort of um, they, they got a tour coming up in September that is in similar rooms, like you know, sort of five and a half thousand to six and seven thousand cap rooms, and and that's yeah, like I'd like to think they'll be full, so. 
Yeah, it's just it's just absurd. Like the the only reason I make you mention those numbers is because it's just it's so um it's just strange for a band that sounds like Parkway Drive to be able to play in front of, you know, 6,000 people in <laughs> it's just so weird, you know. I remember I still remember when they did the Killing with a Smile tour and we sold out the Annandale, which the Annandale Hotel is sort of like a um it was a place where it was a 400 cap room and if you sold it out it was a pretty big deal and I remember we sold that out and I was like, how good is this? Like, this is, you know, like, is that we've made it? Like, that was sort of, you know, like, like, this is so awesome. Like, that whole tour ended up selling out. But we did, I think we sold tickets, like pre-sale tickets. But because none of them sold out on pre-sale, you don't really, you know, now when you sort of do ticketing and things like that, it's a lot different, you know, thought process to how it was back then. But, yeah, I remember sort of the first show of the tour, I think we did 500 people and, at the time, no band in Australia was doing 500 people. And we were just like, whoa, that's awesome. Like, and then, you know, Sydney sells out the Annandale and we were just like, this is crazy. And then after we did the Annandale, like after we sold out that, it was sort of like the next tour, we we're like, oh, let's just go the next size up or whatever. And we did the next size up. And that's pretty much what we've been doing this whole time is sort of like, if you sell out an 850 cap room, well, we'll go to the 1200 cap room. We sell out the 1200 cap room. We go to the 2000 cap room. You go to the 2000, you sell a 3000, 3000 to 5000. And that's, we haven't really, like, whilst that's an easy, you know, that's as simple as what we've been doing, but that's, um, you know, like, unless you're selling them out, you can't move on bigger. But that's basically what we've been doing is just selling out room after room. And when we sell that out, we just go to the next one and we've, we've peaked at 5000. So it's sort of, um, you know, like, there's no, um, yeah, whether or not they end up going bigger at any point, I don't know. But at this point in time, yeah, the next two is booked in the same rooms as that we did the last one. Right, right. But the point being made is that it, there is a logical step into what you're doing, as opposed to like, ah, oh, whatever. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's a theory, but um, it doesn't always work. But it, it's sort of, you know, we sort of find that, you know, you do your promotion and you do what you do all the, you do what you can to make it as big as possible, and you can only hope that people turn up and people keep turning up so that's as simple as it is and um you know and and obviously their fan base is a very loyal one and it's a very um you know whether or not the people that are listening to them 10 years ago are still listening to them i don't know but um you know there's definitely a a mass of people listening to them and we sort of keep trying to and funny thing is in europe it's still building so it's sort of um how big it can get over there i don't know but it's sort of um their next uh, European tour is, or the UK European sort of thing is their largest one to date. And, um, I'd like to think it'll do the business. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just exciting. You can, the last thing I want to hit on before I let you go was the, uh, cause obviously since Australia and the independent music community is so tight and small, and obviously there's not very many people to look to when you're like, Hey, I want to tour Australia. Or like you said, you get so many licensing opportunities from the resist perspective. Is it, is it weird to have to kind of be in some respects, like, you know, a, a, a voice of a nation or it's like people, I'm sure anybody that has a question about Australia in general will come to like, you know, either you or Stu Harvey or (laughs) some of the other people in Australia that I have been known. Um, Is it weird to like, you know, oh, well, I guess I'll I'll offer this perspective. And do you feel like you have to, um, you know, be, uh, I guess, like responsible for it's like, okay, this is the way that our country should be uh, viewed from like either a touring (laughs) perspective. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, it's, uh, there's a lot of responsibility thrust on you. I guess there is, but at the same time, like I'm like, say it doesn't matter if it's a, a kid starting up a label, 
uh, you know, like I remember actually that Pure Noise label, I remember Jake emailing me ages ago about sort of, you know, do you want to do stories so far? I was sort of like, I can't really, um, you know, like I, I just was sort of like, this won't work. And obviously probably now probably would work, but the, um, the, it's sort of funny that over the time, the people that you deal with that sort of ask these things over time, they might end up become doing labels that, you know, end up becoming established and do really well. But as a whole, like Australia is just so small that I, I, I do have an email written up that points out to people the amount of stores that are here and the population that are here and things like that, that I can sort of be like, this is the reality of what we have down here. Not everything's as big as say what the, you know, what Parkway Drive and Amity Affliction and North Lane and what those bands are doing, nothing's like that. And if you're going to sell a license, like you might sell a thousand to 2000 copies. Um, and that's a really, really, really good result. And that's where it's sort of like the numbers just don't, don't add up. So it's, um, I don't know if I was sort of, I don't know if I've crushed a few dreams, but it's sort of, it's definitely, um, it's, yeah, Australia is a funny place. And I think once you have people that are trying to, the way Australia works is the way Australia works. And it's sort of, you can't really bring in other sort of, um, you know, you can't bring in other ideas and things because, you know, there's only so many opportunities here because we just don't have the population and we don't have, like, it's a great, it's a beautiful country. I imagine the majority of bands come here based on a holiday. <laughs> I sort of still feel as though it's not like a business, you know, like say with Europe, you could probably go to Europe and be like, okay, we're going to make X amount of money. But I sort of feel still Australia is a place where it's like, oh, cool, we're playing a show, but we're in Australia. There's so much, like it's just, it's, it still blows people's minds that they come to Australia as a band. And um, if they get paid, it's a bonus, I guess. So that's, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a bit of a, it's, you know, it's not the UK, it's not Europe, it's not Japan, it's not, you know, Southeast Asia or New Zealand. It's it's our own thing and um, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. So it just it is how it is. Right. It's an education process and like you are, you're happy to oblige and be like, well, I, I'm like, totally, oh. I, I can break it down for people pretty easily as to how things work here. And we just don't have the, you know, we have a handful of distributors, we have a handful of, um, I guess, labels. That are doing the you know dealing with the music that we deal with um out of all those labels very few have distributors um the touring side of things there's probably you know short of the guys that are from your sound waves and frontiers and chugs there's only another like a couple of people we all know each other everyone knows each other like it's not a thing where if um you know like it's not a thing where if some, if an agent puts in an offer and is like oh hey i'm trying to get this I could ring two people or one person and be like, oh, hey, did you get that? You're like, yeah, we got that. You know, I'd be like, okay, what do you guys, you know, do you want to do? That's so like a really, like everyone, like I said, everyone knows everyone. There's no real, you know, the whole business of Australian music industry isn't really, like it's like more of a, I guess, a community than an industry because everyone knows everyone, everyone talks, everyone's friends, everyone's, um, you know, it's not as though there's anyone that's out to, hate anyone else or try to sort of make life hard for anyone else. It's sort of like, well, this is how it is. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, and it's, like I said, when you get an agent or a, a US manager being like, oh, hey, do you, you know, I'm sort of dealing with this guy, I'm doing that. It's like, well, I know you are because they told me you're doing that. So it's sort of, you know, it's a not, yeah, it's a, it's an enclosed community. Right. You're like, hey, so this is a small piece of pie that we have down here. It's a really good piece of pie. 
but don't try to act like <laughs> you're going to take more than what is what is this small piece of pie. <laughs> and it's sort of like I said, it's sort of it's a um, there's yeah, there's no real. I'm sure there's competitiveness down here, but there's no. It's nothing like what it is in the states. Like I sort of. Um, I was over for South by Southwest this year and just in a few meetings and things like that, America mm. still has that, you know, everyone's out to compete or everyone's out to, you know, no one's really focusing on doing the best job to get the best result. They all want to just compete and do the most competitive doesn't always win. The person that does the good job always wins. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Well, I, I think that's a very, very appropriate note to leave things off of. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you hanging out and uh, yeah, dissecting, <laughs> dissecting the country, but then also dissecting yourself as well. Yeah, thank you, Ray. So there's my conversation with Graham. Pretty enlightening, right? I think so. I enjoyed that pleasant chat one morning, all of his information about Resist Records, but this was before he opened the actual brick and mortar store. He has a record store in this day and age. It's amazing. So anyways, thank you very much to Graham for making the time before he had to open up the store. And um, yeah, thank you very much for you, the listener, listening to this outro. Because I have a feeling a lot of you bail out at this point. But don't, because there's always good information. Well, that's not entirely true. But anyways, the producer, as always, for this show is Tom Richfield my best friend forever, and visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com, obviously. Email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Man, hopefully I am not recording any more intros on my iPhone anytime soon, but like I said, it's out of sheer function. So thank you, everybody, and until next week, be safe, everybody. Everybody.